If you would, grab your Bibles. If you have one in front of you, and turn to James chapter 1. James 1, and we will in a little bit uh, have that on the screen, as you know. James chapter 1. Last week, we began a, a new series that we're calling Learning to Follow. And the big idea behind this series is that the goal of the church, our church and the church, is not to fill a building. The goal is that Christ would be formed in our hearts. The goal is to be like the Christ. And we're looking at uh, what I'm calling three uh, dynamic environments uh, that if we embrace we'll, could lead to great growth in your life, uh, in, into our lives, that we would see more and more the Christ formed in us. Um, we, we've, we've talked about uh, last week um, the row, and we're going to be talking about the circle and the chair for the, for the rest of the month, and then it's Easter time. How about that? April the 5th right here. When we talked about the row, we talked about the church as the church is gathered. As we as a body of believers, we come together and we do what you're doing right now, sit in rows. And what happens, and we talked about the dynamic environment of the row, that what happens uh, has happened through the, through the centuries when God's church comes together, uh, we gather and we sing. And we talked about how the Bible teaches that there's a couple of different dominant worship um, expressions, if you will. And it's sad because the church, especially in America, they don't do this um, in third world countries and in places uh, where it's, there's persecution and challenge. There's just greater love and unity there. But here, in our consumeristic American culture, we fight a lot. We've got opinions that turn to preferences, that turn to convictions, that turn to backbiting and devouring each other and talking down different churches and expressions of worship. But we looked at the scripture and when we sing, we, we looked at how in Hebrews chapter 12, if you're a note taker, you can write Hebrews 12, 28. We didn't put that up. We won't put it up today. But it says that our worship, that God is an all-consuming fire and that our worship ought to be with reverence and awe. And we talked about that, how uh, Psalm 4610, we did put that verse up, be still and know that I am God. And for some of you, that's your background or that's your preference of worship. The Bible says it. You know, you, you don't want to walk into a room where people are loud and there's talking and stuff like that. To you, it seems inappropriate and irreverent. Um, you, you come to church. Maybe you came to Fondren Church for the first time. If you're from a more formal background and you, you came in and you thought, this is a, a beautiful place. And there's some talented people up here, but those, those songs are not my style. It's not what I'm used to. And you noticed early on that uh, someone during the song, they had a question. And in fact, there was, there was a woman down front, she had two questions during the song. And that worship leader didn't stop to acknowledge that this person had questions, right? But you know, we, we come with a bent, don't we? We come with a past. We've been shaped and molded by something in our past. But the Bible says that we ought to make a joyful noise to the Lord. There ought to be celebration to it, right? And scripture over and over. In fact, we looked at just the whole hymns versus praise songs, and I put up a bunch of psalms, just one after the other, and some passages in Revelation where it'll all be consummated, where we will have new songs. God gives gifted men and women new songs to sing. And even in Psalm 150, uh, he repeated the, the praise chorus an awful lot. 
He didn't get the memo, right? So it was a call for us when we gather in rows, this dynamic discipleship environment, for us to elevate our thinking and what God can do when we're filled with awe and we worship him in quiet and stillness. And when we are celebrating and we're doing what the Bible commands over and over, singing new songs of celebration to God. But we look specifically at the supremacy of preaching, that through the years God has chosen this vessel to impact his people. Whether we stand behind a big podium with a King James Version or a bald guy with a goatee sits on a stool, uh, God has chosen this vehicle to teach his people, to, to share his word. And it's really important. Through the centuries, from Moses to the prophets we said last week, to John the Baptist, to Jesus, to Peter at Pentecost, to the church-planting genius of the Apostle Paul, God chooses to use preachers to uh, share his word. The chair, the, the, the row comes from Luke chapter 4. And we see here this passage, we looked at it last week, and he, he being Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And some of you had an open Bible to Luke 4 last week. And I had you look back at verse 16. It says that Jesus did this. It says, as was his custom. What was his custom? Uh, he observed the Sabbath. He was in the synagogue. And he was standing up to teach. Or he was sitting down to listen. In fact, his first sermon, Luke tells us, was from Isaiah 61 about setting captives free. And we talked about just the importance um, of teaching and what it means, but here's what we're saying. Gathering in rows is a beautiful God-ordained thing. And we're asking you to make a commitment to this environment. We think you'll be a better Christ follower. We'll think, we think your family, your heart will be healthier and more wholesome. We think our church will be a better place for this community to love our neighbors and to love the nations. If you make a commitment to the row, you make it a priority to be here, but the row is limited. In fact, in Isaiah, well, last Sunday, um, I quoted from Isaiah, I'm sorry, from Amos 5, and the day before, on a bridge in Selma, Alabama, President Obama quoted from Martin Luther King, who quoted from the same passage in Amos. And that passage in Amos, as we talked about last week, says we better be careful when Christian people gather in rows because God says, I hate your festivals. I despise your solemn assemblies. I won't even listen to the noise of your music and the sound of your melody, your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your peace offerings. I despise them. I don't want any part of them. Hey, people, let justice. Here's MLK. Here was President Obama from the prophet Amos, from God. Let justice roll like a river. Let it flow. Let righteousness, let it, let it flow like an everlasting stream. In other words, if we hear God's word and do nothing about it, then that is an affront to a holy God. Something should happen when, when we gather here. Something different should happen to us. Uh, it's not about information. Somebody once said it's about transformation. Jesus really does. He really does want to change our lives. Jesus taught about teaching. And we're going to look at this idea of teaching and being in rows today before we go next week to the circle and then to the chair. But in this, this idea, Jesus taught about teaching. 
And here's what I want you to know this morning, that when Jesus taught, he taught in John 15, he said, I teach that you might have joy and that your joy may be full. Sometimes we associate teaching with commandments and with laws and with lifelessness, with cold, uninspiring, boring, monotonous stuff, right? And Jesus says, man, I want this to get in you, and I want it to have its effect. And guess what? Righteousness will roll. Holiness and justice, man, it'll flow and it will bless the world. You see, Jesus, listen to me this morning. Jesus doesn't just want to be your savior. He wants to be your teacher. He wants to save you, but he wants to send you as well. And when Jesus taught, it was a form of love. You know what? Every great teacher, when they teach, it's a form of love. Ask any proud parent. That's why parents buy their kids educational toys. And we teach them to read and we drag them to classes. And we post their graphs and charts and artwork on the refrigerator. And we ask them to take steps, to stand up, to sit up, to take steps. And we celebrate. We celebrate sounds coming from their infant mouths that resemble not any, remark, any recognizable word, right? We celebrate with our kids. We want to teach them. It is a form of love. A mother will ask a child, particularly a daughter, to help around the house, right? When that mother knows that she could do that job infinitely quicker than having that child help her. Teaching is a form of love. Every proud parent knows that. Teaching is a form of love. Every great teacher knows that. Do you know about the teacher named Annie Sullivan who awakened the soul of a woman named Helen Keller? Or if you study Greek-Roman history, my favorite period of history, uh, you'll know that students at Socrates' death, they sat in rows to pay tribute to this man who had so greatly impacted their lives. We, you and I were moved at movies like Mr. Holland's Opus and Dead Poet Society because great teachers, when they teach, it's a form of love. A, a great teacher doesn't just dispense information and catalog facts. A great teacher opens up a life, a heart and mind to a whole new world. And Jesus did that. Jesus taught, and Jesus taught about teaching. He said that they're blind leaders of blind. Be careful. He said that a student becomes like his teacher. That's the core of discipleship. Any doctors in the house? You probably had to follow up somebody, right? You had to be with somebody. You didn't have to just be in the classroom. You had to be with them because a student becomes like his teacher. And Jesus taught it so long ago. And this morning, if you turn to James chapter 1, I want us to first to look at James 1, 22. James is the half-brother, I think more technically the step-brother of Jesus. And we're going to look at what Jesus and James said about teaching and its power and its limits. Look at this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Could we, church, would you, would you in a robust way read this aloud with me? But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. Can I say to you, believing is fine. Intending is good. But application is everything. Your doctor could prescribe to you some drugs or medication. But unless you take it as prescribed, it will do you no good. You could have the sleekest pair of athletic running shoes in town. But unless those shoes pound the pavement with your feet in them, it's not going to do you any good. You can read all about nutrition labels and the very types of proteins and just elements in your body that you need, but if you do nothing about your diet, it'll do you no good. 
Believing is fine. Intending is good. But application is everything. Look at verse 23. It gets good. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. The person typing the words was drinking real heavy last night. Back, back to verse, go back to that other verse. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once. He forgets what he is like. Now, James introduces us to this idea of a mirror. Now, we get mirrors in our world, don't we? But mirrors back then were not made of glass. Mirrors were made of metal. Mirrors were made of bronze. They had some tin mirrors. And oftentimes in that uh, Jewish culture, they would take out a bucket, a bucket of, yes, bath water. They would pull it outside. They would peer over it and look into it on a sunny day and see their reflection. But in our day, we got some mirrors, don't we? How many of you have multiple mirrors? How many of you looked at those multiple mirrors, right? Different angles and all, and uh, we know who you are. You know who you are. Vanity of vanities, right? But we've got some mirrors, and we have mirrors with lights around it. That's scary, isn't it? So that we can be magnified. Years ago, when I was a pastor at Pine Lake Church, don't go there, when I was a pastor at Pine Lake Church, uh, we decided to open a new campus in Madison, and they said, hey, we're going to have screens, and we're going to put chip on the screen over there. We're going to have a campus pastor and do all that stuff because a whole bunch of people drive from, from, you know, out to the rest from there. And we had a practice round, and guess who was the first ever preacher on a screen? Practice Sunday, RG gave the first ever sermon on a screen. And chip, Yeah, thank you. And Chip was over there live. And everyone talked about, no one said anything about the sermon, its quality or lack thereof, but everybody talked about how larger than life I looked, how this mug was magnified. And let me be honest with you, I I was proud of that first. I love to be an innovator, but the thought of this mug being magnified in front of thousands of people doesn't bring me great comfort. You know what I'm saying? Now, I've got a beautiful heart. Y'all know that. But the outside, I mean, I was cute. I used to be cute. But I don't want this mug magnified, right? I've got those, I, you just don't want, you don't want this on a big screen. Now, if we ever start another campus one day, I don't think we will. I think we'll plant a church and send people, right? I mean, I just don't feel like God has called this to be on the screen. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Thank you. That's, yeah. The seat's in the balcony if you'd like. But you know, We want to be magnified, but we don't want to be magnified, right? And here's what happens when you go and you look in a mirror. You, when the morning, when you look and you see your natural face and you got the dragon breath to boot, but you look in the mirror and you say, oh, wow, right? You say, oh, wow, and notice you've got the mirror that's made of glass, but you've got all those products on the bathroom counter, right? A whole bunch. How many products do you have on the bathroom counter? A whole bunch. Because when you look in the mirror, you say, oh, wow. And you begin to do something about the oh wow, right? And James is saying to you and to I that we spend so much time worrying about and working on the physical self in that physical mirror that we neglect when God holds up his word of truth in our lives and we see something about our hearts in this spiritual mirror. 
And it's a real tragedy. In fact, he's saying to us that it is a form of deception. You and I, we deceive ourselves. Because we don't what? We see something, but we don't do anything about it. Now, a lot of you, when you see something, you do something about it. Right? And there are products now more than ever to do something about the oh, wow. You, ladies, you travel and you got your oh, wow bag, don't you? Because you know that hotel or wherever you're going to stay, there's going to be mirrors everywhere. And you got all your oh, wow products so you can do something about what you see in the mirror. And James, the half-brother, step-brother of Jesus is saying, what a tragedy. When we neglect the heart and what really matters. Now, let me talk to you for a second. A lot of you, you had something in your life happen. You did something or didn't do something, and right now you want to go back to that night, to that weekend, to that week, to that season of your life. You so want to go back and undo what you did or do what you didn't do, and you're chock full of regret. That junior year of high school or that freshman year of college, oh my, that freshman year of college, hmm? or that, that first time you moved to that new city, that first whatever, and you look back and you say, man, just regrets. Now, I don't know all of you personally. I know a lot of you, but let me say this. I'm going to make a bet. I'm going to say that if you go back in your mind and you look at that night, that weekend, that week, that season, I bet you look good. I bet you, man, I bet you were so fresh and so clean. Your makeup, fellas, you were shaved tight or the beard was in. You, you were looking good with a beard, right? You looked good, your hair, everything. You looked good. You, you looked your best, but your behavior was your worst. And James is saying something to us. He's saying to us that we deceive ourselves. Believing is fine, intending is good, but application is everything. And that week in, that night, that week, that season that you look back with so much regret, it was a failure of application. And I think James is saying to us, when we deceive ourselves, this is profound, is that at the same time, listen to me, at the very same moment, you can be both the deceiver and the deceived. Superman had kryptonite. Wally Coyote had the roadrunner. Achilles had his heel. You have you. And I have me. And nobody lies to you more than you. Now, in a, a crowd this size, somebody's out there going, no, that ain't true, preacher. That ain't true. That's a lie. You see what I did there? I tricked you. Nobody lies to you more than you. And as a pastor, counselor, I'll sit down with so many folks through the years and I'll hear them utter this, this phrase that's just so common to the human condition. Here it is. Deep down, I knew better. Deep down, I knew. You knew but you didn't do. And nobody sets out to live a mediocre existence. 
No one stands at an altar in a beautiful church like this and makes a pledge to be divorced down the road. No parent has, uh, gives birth to a child and says, we're going to be so busy and so about our stuff and our things that that child won't really know us or love us. In fact, they'll grow to resent us. Nobody starts out that way, do they? Application is everything. What are we doing about what we know? Now, James 1.25, this is my favorite part of the passage because on the surface, it seems cryptic. It just doesn't seem believable. And then you get deeper and it just radiates with brilliance. It makes me, and some of you here, you're not a Christian. And this is one of those passages that just makes me go, wow, I bet the Bible is true. It says this, but the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Leave that up, if you will, for some time. The perfect law of liberty. And if you do it, you'll be blessed. Now, does anybody kind of have a problem with that? Because who likes the word law? Right? We, 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 we had dinner Friday night with some friends out in the reservoir, and we were coming back, and there was uh, several blue light specials in front of us, and they were stopping, routine stops, to, to check people. For license and seat belts and stuff like that. That's what they said. And my bride said to me, ooh, I was driving her Mazda. She said, ooh, my tag is expired. Do you think, do you think we like the law Friday night? Now, we got through. We got through that. No problem. He didn't look at our tag because God loves preachers, right? <laughs> and I would have gotten out of the ticket if I'd have gotten it anyway, right? Because God loves preachers. But in that moment, do you think we love the law? Because the law says to us, what got you? I'm going to catch you. And honestly, you know, when I think of law, I know some of you, we got a lot of lawyers. That's probably a very bad sign for our church. But we have a lot of lawyers. And when I think of law, I think of what? Probably what you think about. Something that's long and technical and complicated and scholarly. And when Jesus came, he did what? He fulfilled the law. Didn't abolish it, but he fulfilled it. And he gave us a new law. You know what the law is? The law of love. The law of love. John, the disciple whom he loved, said in 1 John 5, 3, You love us, God, and therefore your commands, your laws, they are not burdensome. It's kind of like the kid who misbehaved and the mom put him, she told him to go in his room and sit in the corner. And after an hour, she yelled from the other room. She said, are you still sitting in the corner? He said, I'm sitting, I'm sitting on the outside, but inside I'm standing. Right? I mean, there's something about us. You know, there's that outward compliance. And some of us, that's our view of God. You're misbehaving. The law catches you misbehaving. And your view of God is he wants to punish you. And James is saying there's a perfect law of liberty. And there's a lot of imperfect laws. There's a lot of burdensome and grievous laws. But there is a perfect law of liberty that Jesus gives. And it leads to being blessed. It leads to liberty. Now, is that true? Does God's law, does it lead to liberty? When I was a little boy, my dad told me, Every time I got a dollar, give a dime. You know what I said? I said, that's cool. 
I did that. At first, it was fine until I moved from an allowance to a job and started making hundreds of dollars. And honestly, it didn't feel like liberty. It felt like robbery. But even though it felt that way, I kept on doing it. Because I chose, even though I wavered, because everyone who has faith also has doubt, I wavered. But I believe what the scripture says, that God's math is different. It didn't always feel like freedom, but can I tell you, it has led to financial freedom. And anybody in the room that has a boatload of debt and no financial margin, can I ask you, does it feel like freedom? When someone says, this is my stuff, and they live according to greed, because greed, here's a good definition of greed. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. And God says something differently. What I have struggled with through the years that didn't seem like freedom has led me to great freedom. Why? Because God's law is true. And his law is given to me out of love. Not wealthy. We've got, we've got financial concerns. We've got things we're trying to tackle. We get, we're pulling out calculators, figuring out what to do about things. But we have financial freedom. When I get a letter in the mail to sponsor a child or our church has a need or something's going on, we have an opportunity to pray about it and we're able to give financial freedom. God's word is true. Look at the area of not just, not just money but morality and sexuality. You know, the Bible begins with a marriage of Adam and Eve and it ends with a marriage of Christ and the church and smack dab in the middle there's a celebration of erotic love called the Song of Solomon. And I believe that every song out there today, for the most part, is some sort of effort to enter into a love that really matters. But it's misdirected love in so many ways. I mean, there's teachers out there, right? When Jesus said, the blind lead the blind, a student will become like his teacher. Look, there are messages out there, certainly about love and marriage and sexuality. Whether you're on Amazon or Google or you're at a Waka Flocka Flame concert at Club La Vila in Panama City, there's a message, there's a liturgy. You hear what I'm saying? It's not as formal. No one uses direct communication, but there's a message. Do you believe that? There's a message because Jesus teaches us that someone is always teaching you. And I look at this marriage between a man and a woman at the beginning and this marriage between Christ and the church. And I look at this celebration, an unabashed celebration of erotic love. And I think, what, well, who's teaching me? Who's teaching me? And it's, it, the world is teaching you. Do you believe that? And this area is destroying our kids. And some of you who have live with extreme promiscuity in high school and college, if you're in your 30s and 40s now, I ask you, did it bring you freedom? Did it or did it rob you of freedom? This idea that God gives doesn't seem like it's free, does it? Sex for marriage? Sex for marriage only? We, we live with what I call the, the Jagger theory. Yeah, Mick Jagger which is marriage is just an old, outdated notion. And it was good for primitive people to propagate the species. But now the world has 7 billion people in it, and why would you choose just one? Dumb God 
dumb idea. That is not freedom. Think about bachelor parties. The implicit understanding of a bachelor party is what? You're about to get married, so get out of town, whether it's Vegas or Uncle Rick's cabin, and you're going to get away, and what are you going to do? The implicit understanding of that is what? You're about to be chained down. So therefore, live it up. It's your last chance to be spontaneous and carefree. I mean, why have a formal wedding ceremony? Why the assumptions, the old assumptions and the legal obligations, why stand in a church or somewhere and give some formal legal binding contract or agreement in front of family and friends with a wedding cake and a really bad 80s cover band? Why do that anymore? Why not just do things your way? Let's, let's do things from our own heart and let's be in the modern era. And years ago, I heard that. I was taught by the culture, but I also know there were some good people in my life that cared about me. And there was a student pastor, and I think Fondren Church may hire one this year as we think about our future. But there was a student pastor and some other people that God put in my life, and I was taught that sexuality is sacred and that marriage is actually an adventure. And I can stand here today, and let me tell you, for the most part, I bought in. I bought into that idea, but man, did I waver. Man, there were there times of sitting at home and being lonely and wondering why God would be so hateful and vengeful toward me and would restrict me and why I was the one being made fun of. But can I tell you today in the area of sexuality, what I, when I saved myself and the way I chose to live, you know what? It's led to a lot of freedom up here. And when I stood 18 and a half years ago with her out at a wedding, I wasn't looking at marriage as something I was losing. I saw it as something I was gaining, an adventure. That when God has someone for you, it's an adventure that's God-ordained. And through the years, we've looked at each other and said, what next? What now? It's an adventure. You see, how you see marriage affects how you experience marriage. And you're being taught about morality and marriage and sexuality. And some of you are buying in hook, line, and sinker. Do I sound old school this morning? Lastly, think about this idea that seems so restrictive and outdated. It just seems like it shackles us, but Jesus, the master teacher, he teaches us to forgive others, to even forgive our enemies. When you've been blatantly done wrong, to not seek vengeance, but to say, God, you got this. That person may be a fool, but God says, I got the fool. Let me take care of the fool. But what do you do? In your heart, there's everything about us, including me, says what? Man, I'm going to get them back. Whether it's a cold shoulder, a, an icy glare, whether it's being neglectful of them, whether it, or if it's cutting their tires in the parking lot, or talking bad about them in the form of a prayer request. I, my dark heart, seeks vengeance. And you laugh because you're just as guilty. But you know, you know what I know about forgiveness? It's a triple whammy. Because we sit here and we say, someone has wronged me, and God, really, God? I mean, you, really? Forgive them for that? When I could easily do this, and when I do that, it could just free me up, right? And it's a triple whammy, because first, they get you. And then God gets you. And then you get you. If you do it his way, right? 
Here's how I want to illustrate it to you this morning. See if you, if you buy in. Let's say you have an accident and you're an insured driver, but someone hits you and guess what? They are uninsured. Not only are they uninsured, they don't have a valid driver's license that expired and they don't have a job. And you have two choices. You could leave the scene sour that they wrecked your car. Or you could let your insurance fix it and release it, right? And in a very uh, spiritual, emotional, visceral way, what's true there could be true. I mean, really, who, do you really want to just wait around and sour and sulk and seethe because somebody else doesn't have insurance? Should they have insurance? Yes. Should they have a valid driver's license? Yes. Should you get your tag renewed? Yes. All these things should be true, right? There are, there's the ought and the obligation, the duty to obey the law. I'm with you. But are you going to live the rest of your life? And I want to ask some of you this morning. I want to ask all of you, but it'll apply to some of you for sure. How far into your future do you want to carry the anger of your past? And I believe what Jesus says is true. I believe his way is superior. I can't tackle every objection to my faith, but I can talk about the beautiful, unmarveled, matchless wisdom of Jesus. And every single time, it's better. I want to close with this. James's stepbrother, half-brother, Jesus, taught this way. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, and what? Does them. Because believing is fine, intending is good, but application is everything. If you do them, whoever does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And don't go to, some of you are going to three little piggies right now. Don't do that, okay? Let's stay with Matthew 7. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. If you're a businessman or woman, you probably know of Jim Collins who wrote Good to Great. He also wrote a, wrote a book called How the Mighty Fall. And you know how the mighty fall, they think they're beyond it. They don't think it applies to them. They don't think they have to do what it says. And Jesus is saying this, that there is a law of liberty. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, young people. It, application is liberty. It may not seem like it initially, but it is true eventually. I love it when the word is heard and the word is practiced, don't you? I love it when we, when we see it in our lives. In fact, that's why we move people out of rows into circles and why we're going to get you in a couple of weeks to think about the chair. Because we can gather in rows and it happens every single Sunday and every single service all around the land is we hear but we do not do. I, in my heart, deep in my heart, I knew. Yeah, you knew, but you didn't do. At the end of the month, I w I've been asked to be the keynote speaker at Bell Haven for a group of high school kids who are about to head to college. And you may have seen this Mississippi Christian Living magazine. And it's just 25 kids from Jackson Metro and around the state. Young people, I don't know any of them. They'll have to hear me speak in a couple of weeks. 
But here's what I noticed. Here's what I, I really like is that every one of these kids is involved in a church. It tells you where they go to school and where they go to church. But it doesn't, it doesn't laud or praise anyone for what they believe or what they intend to do, but what they're doing, right? And I don't know if um, a guy I love, Walter Donald, is in the house. Walter, are you here? Is Walter Donald? Walter is in the balcony. Make your way forward if you would and do so as fast as you can. He had no idea this is coming. Be careful at Fondren Church. Just be real careful. And as Walter quickly makes his way here, Walter is a, one of our deacons, and he's a guy who God has just radically changed his life. Now, this guy's full of sin. He's very imperfect. He's got a lot of hurts, habits, and hang-ups, as they say. He's lived a life of drugs and been in jail. He's cheated the law. I mean, we put him on video, didn't we? Come up here, Walter. I'm going to say some more bad things about you. All right. Thank you, Robert. But Walter um, loves Jesus. And God's brought him to Fondren Church when we're over there. And he's here and just growing by leaps and bounds. And Walter invests. He hears the word here in the row. And he gets in a circle. And he says, how can I do what the word says? And his life in so many ways is a testimony to, to being blessed. Now, he works for Gary Watts. That's not a blessing, right? But he, God is blessing his life. And you know what he does? On Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, he takes some of the West Fondren kids and he buys them breakfast. And on Saturday nights, he takes them to the movies. And he does things for them. And a lot of times, well, all the time, he's taking money out of his own pocket to help a bunch of kids. And some folks in our church wanted to give you a little bit of money to say thank you. Love you, buddy. I want you to go. And uh, what? So as, as Walter Donald leaves the platform, I want to tell you that as our budget grows here and you do good deeds, you'll be getting a new car, okay? Amen. It'll be the church of Oprah, right? <laughs> now, what we did is, is, is right on the line or maybe even crossing the line, right? Because Jesus said, do your good things, man, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. Don't do those things to be seen, right? And the message today isn't get a check and be applauded, but I will say this, whether it's our young people, including my own, or if it's a guy that's not so young, believing is fine, intending is good, but application is everything. And if today in telling my testimony, and I knew this, I was praying about it this morning, I thought when I share about money and sexuality and marriage and forgiveness. I'm, I, I'm on the edge of maybe sounding like I'm squeaky clean. Y'all know I'm not squeaky clean. But man, I'm telling you, I want to be a testimony of hearing the word and believing what God says and then walking in, and it's counterintuitive and it's crazy, but walking in the law of liberty, for it is love. The master teacher, when he taught, was not to weigh you down with burdensome commandments. It's to show you that he loves you. Tennis players, you cannot play tennis without a baseline. Baseball players, you can't play baseball without a foul line. Football players, you cannot play football without a sideline. 
And those things you would agree, all you players, you would agree that those boundaries help you. It actually helps you. It brings meaning to the game. Do you want to play without it? But it also helps you maximize the game. Now, when Jesus taught and he taught us about teaching, and James, his brother, look in the mirror because you can see things. But the reason we did 2 Timothy 4 last week about how when you teach, Paul told Timothy, teach in season, out of season, and do so with reproof, rebuke, exhortation, with patience, and real practical teaching. Because we need God's truth. We need a mirror in our lives. A mirror helps us see, but you know, sometimes we can't see. It's why we're going to ask you next week to, to get in a circle and to grow all the more and to help other people get in a circle because we need other people to see. In football, I've learned that on, on, in the NFL, your quarterback's your, your highest paid player. But surprisingly, the second highest paid player is, you ready for this? Is your left tackle. Now, why do you need a left tackle? Scott, not true of you, but true of most quarterbacks. Almost all quarterbacks in the NFL are right-handed. And you're paying this guy so much money because he's so important. And he's got a blind side. He cannot see. Ole Miss, remember Michael Orr? Left tackle. Mississippi State, I think Derek Sherrod with the Chiefs, left tackle. Southern Miss, y'all didn't have anybody. But <laughs> left tackle. Left tackles are important, right? Because we can't see. And we can be that for each other. But what if you and I have a left tackle in our life, a friend at Fawnard, a friend in our circle, who is a left tackle for us, who also is learning to look in the mirror and walking in the perfect law of liberty? Let me pray. God, I thank you for these dynamic environments. And Lord, it burdens my heart to see churches divided and split over worship styles and teaching styles. Lord, your word gives us so much freedom. So much freedom to worship you, so much freedom to hear your word. But the call for all of us is to find the liberty and the application. And God, for someone struggling right now to be obedient, whether they're single or married or whatever the situation is, Lord, I pray that you show them there is liberty in your law, your law of love. And they may not see it now initially. But Lord, I thank you that you will show them eventually. That you are the master teacher. And your love is greater. God, call forth our church. Help us stir one another on to love and good deeds. To not be so concerned about whether this building is full but be so much more concerned that Christ is being formed in us for we are called to be like the Christ. In Jesus we pray, amen. Church, would you stand? We're gonna sing, have an opportunity to pray. For all of you sing, join in with this chorus and add your voices. And for some of you, we would love, I was reminded last night by text that there's some real needs in the life of our church. This is an opportunity, just a few minutes, to pray with some of you. My prayer has been that this place would be a house of prayer. Stand and sing and come today if we can uh, pray over you.